Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week. And we are back to our book overviews. We're going to do the book of Judges this week. And I can't say that it's not a little bit because of the election that we're doing the book of Judges this week. I think you'll see some of the uh, some of the parallels as we go here. But, you know, just a reminder, the reason we do these book overviews is because, you know, the mission of So We Speak is to think Christianly about the world. And all the, uh, you know, explanations and political engagement and social engagement in the world won't help if you aren't building a Christian worldview in Scripture. Right. And so, you know, we see it as the foundation of everything that we do that we grow in our understanding of God's Word. So we grow in how to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to think about it. As we talked about a few weeks ago now in the book of Ezra, uh, he set himself to know the Word of God, to study it, to teach it, to do it. That's really the mantra of what we're trying to do. So Mm -hmm. this week we're going to be going over the book of Judges, which... I always try to give these books superlatives. If there's one for the book of Judges, I, I think it's most likely to make a great Netflix series of any book in the Bible. <laughs> Good point. Judges has got to be it. It would be right up their alley, too. It has uh-huh. all, all kinds of PG-13 content that they would love. Amazon and Netflix should really bid on the rights to do the book I of Judges. I agree with that. So... To begin, as we usually do, let's set this in the historical context. Whether you're coming from the end of Joshua that sets up this book, you have the Exodus obviously moving into this time in the land, or if you're just picking up this book uh, to read it or read a part of it, we want to know what's happening in history, what's happening in biblical history. And then as we go through what's happening in salvation history, how is God uh, tying his story together in the world? So What's happening surrounding the book of Judges? Well, you have the, I'll use the traditional dates. There are two, there's an argument about the dating of the events, not necessarily this book so much, but the dating of the Exodus drives all of this. But according to traditional dating, Moses brought the Israelites into the promised land, the edge of the promised land in the late 15th century BC. So think 1406 BC. Then Joshua, the book of Joshua, they cross, they go in, and they uh, basically partially subdue the land. And so it moves us into the 14th century B.C. Think 1375, 1350, and then Judges picks up after the life of Joshua and continues the story of uh, the Israelites in the Promised Land. I I was going to say the Israelites conquering the Promised Land, but that doesn't actually happen. So think about this uh, as the time of the judges is a very tribal time, and the tribes have been given a mission from God. They've accepted a covenant from God. And from about 1375, 1350, down to the time of Samuel, say 1050, so the next 300 years approximately, is what this book covers that time span. Mm -hmm. And it'll be various stories about individual heroes, heroines of the faith. It will be the good, the bad, the ugly, but it will tell you how did Israel fare in the promised land during that 300 years. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking from the big picture, you know, the big events of the Bible, you have the Exodus, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, you have the wandering, the conquest of the land, which is Joshua and Judges, 
and that takes you up to the time of David and Solomon. So this is a pivotal three centuries or two and a half centuries of Israel's history, and it's going to tell us a lot about the character of the Israelite people uh, coming out of the generations coming out of Egypt leading up to the time of selecting a king for the nation. You know, one of the things that about Judges that is so unique is that its content and its structure are um, uniquely related. There's a form that runs through Judges that mm-hmm. is, is thematically significant, and it's often referred to as the Judges cycle. And what you see is there's this cycle that plays out in Judges of the Israelite people are oppressed, they cry out to God, God hears them, he raises up a judge. The judge is filled with or clothed with the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. delivers them, and then there's peace in the land. And while there's peace in the land, the Israelites run off after foreign gods. They get conquered. They are oppressed. They cry out to God. God saves them. They have peace. They right. sell out again and worship other gods. And anyway, this happens throughout the book of Judges. And one of the things that's really interesting about this cycle is I think there's a lot of ramifications for our own lives in the way that this cycle plays mm-hmm. out, which we'll talk about as we, as we move through the podcast. But the other thing I think is significant is in the text itself, this cycle begins to unravel even as the book goes on. So if there's one overarching theme to the book of Judges, it is the spiral, the moral and religious spiral exactly. out of control. There is, there is a, an entropy in the book of Judges where things go from a nice, neat cycle that you'll see a few times at the beginning and you see this cycle, too, in, in the deliverance from Egypt. Uh, so this cycle predates the book of Judges, but the cycle unravels as the book goes on. The judge gets less clear. The uh, oppression gets more frequent. The peace gets shorter. The people do worse things. It is a degenerative book. That is a really great point. Uh, one of the things I think of in Judges is it doesn't really stand alone. Two thoughts. Number one... Don't think as you read Judges, this is the same group of people in, in all areas of this. There's, gen, I said, 300 years or more, generational uh, cycle. You know, so it's one mm-hmm. generation that may be delivered. It's, it may be the next generation that departs. Right. So the other thing that I'd point out is Romans 1 always strikes me this way in just that one chapter. And Romans 1 is talking not about a specific people, but really more about humanity and our fallen nature. And it always feels like as you move through Romans chapter 1, it is also a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And you see that vividly in the book of Judges. Yeah, you end up at a point that's very similar to Romans 1. The last line of Judges, kind of the end point of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a pretty desperate state of affairs for the people of God. You have to remember, these are the Israelites. These are God's chosen people, the offspring of Abraham, who are supposed to be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles, uh, living in the promised land at this point. In fact, this, this is a theme that's really interesting to trace through these, these historical books, is you have so many pointers towards the land. So you have the promise with Abraham in Genesis, you have the migration away to Egypt, you have him promised to bring the people out to a land flowing with milk and honey, and in Joshua you get a very triumphant 
set of conquests and right. things. But once they actually settle in the land, uh, things don't go very well. At least not until the time of David. And right. then after the time of David, they sharply turn downhill again until they're brought out of the land again through the exile. So the actual time they spend in the promised land in the Old Testament is very briefly a time of uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. Mostly it's characterized by disobedience and rebellion and being conquered. Exactly. So let's, uh, with that in mind, let's begin to walk through the book of Judges knowing that this cycle is occurring. You see it really clearly at the beginning once you get into chapter 3 with, with these first few Judges and then, as we'll show, it, it kind of unravels later on. But there's some really interesting... Um, introductory material in Judges. And mm-hmm. so you're coming, if you're in a Bible reading plan, for example, you're coming off of the end of Joshua, which I've gone on record many times to say is the most boring part of the Bible. It sneaks <laughs> up on you. You think it's going to be Leviticus. Leviticus is actually not that bad. You think it's going to be Numbers. Numbers is great. It's very entertaining. And you arrive in the second half of Joshua and you get a very, very boring part of Scripture. Right. But things are about to change when you move into the book of Judges. Pace picks up in so season what, two. Yeah, yeah, what do we what do we have in see, in uh, season two, uh, chapter one of, of Judges? Well, in Judges chapter one, as it opens, uh, as you said, you really you see continued battle and you see a really strange story. Uh, when I say strange, I mean extremely interesting about Judah going up and fighting against a particular king and. Uh, the idea of cutting off thumbs, cutting off toes, and and justice being done on the bad guys. You see some uh, capturing Jerusalem, etc. But what you see uh, as you get into this a little bit, verse 27, the kind of the summary of the end of Joshua and Judges is it starts going through a, a litany of the tribes. Manasseh, the tribe Manasseh, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages. Verse 29, the tribe of Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, etc., etc. It goes through the tribes and it talks about their lack of faith and their lack of faithfulness to accomplish and complete the tasks that they were given. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, one of the things I've always loved about chapter 1, at least, is the story of Caleb. So if you're, if you're reading and you're attentive, the book of Joshua carries on the story of, of one of the really significant successors to Moses. But if you remember, when Moses sends the spies into the land, two of the spies come back and give a good report, right? So the rest of the spies say, these guys are huge. Mm-hmm. We don't want anything to do with them. Uh, we're tiny compared to them. We can't do this. But two of the spies say, our God has given us this land and we should go in and take it. And those two are Caleb and Joshua. And you hear a lot about Joshua. He ends up being the successor of Moses. Uh But you don't really hear much about Caleb. What happened to Caleb? Right. Well, Judges chapter 1 tells you what happened to Caleb and what happens to his family. And he has a very interesting story. So the thing I really love about this is just picturing the fact that, you know, Caleb was a young man when he went into the land for the first time. Uh, we don't know exactly how old he and Joshua were or the rest of the spies, but right. fairly young men. Well, it's been a very long time mm-hmm. since this happened. Because remember, you have to have the wandering uh, period where they're being punished for not believing that God will give them 
the land. Right. Then you have the conquest of Joshua, and this is taking place at some point in the midst of that. Right. So Caleb obviously is with the Israelites, and then at the death of Joshua, he gets to go have his own land. He goes into the hill country of Ephraim. And I don't know, how old do you think he is at this point? Maybe a hundred? That is a good point. I would say yes. If you think about when, how old they were when they sent them in as spies, you would think 20s. Yeah. Young, young yeah. men at that point. And so fast forwarding, you've got people uh, of my era. That's, yeah. all, that's all I'll say. <laughs> but yeah, and so at 80 or 90 or 100 or however old he is, he, he's still kicking. I mean, he's going right. off. He asks for this particular land knowing that there are fierce warriors in this land. And he goes after them. And in fact, he uh, institutes a reward system uh, for clearing off this land. And his family settles there. And he gives his daughter to his younger brother, Othniel, who is one of the braver warriors. And uh, it turns out later that Othniel is going to be our first judge. Mm -hmm. So the family, if, if Joshua is the story of Joshua and his uh, conquests. Judges at least starts by being the story of Caleb and his family's conquests. His little brother Othniel leads off the judges as his family settles into this hill country of Ephraim, which we've mentioned before, uh, coming out of Genesis and the promises to Abraham. As you follow through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, mm -hmm. the hill country of Ephraim is a really interesting theme to follow. You might even just Put a little mark next to it in your Bible. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting things that happen here and things that come back in the New Testament as well in this same area. So those are just little things to pay attention to as you read. So in chapter 1, we get that story. And in chapter 2, as you've mentioned, the or in the second half of chapter 1 at least, we get a very clear setup for what's about to happen in the book of Judges. And the Bible goes to, to uh, great lengths to warn you almost mm -hmm. about what's going to happen. And the point that it's making in this second half, like you said, is they don't drive out the people that God commands them to drive out of the land. And this is going to have very dire consequences later on. In fact, if you could pick a turning point in the book of Judges, or if you could pick uh, kind of the trajectory that's set for the rest of the book of Judges, it would be these verses, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, and going all the way through chapter 2, we get judgment from the Lord for not driving these people out. And it's going to lead to some pretty dire consequences later on. I agree. You get uh, the idea that, I guess you could think about it as what we call uh, kind of a natural discipline or positive discipline. It is a judgment of God. In chapter 2, the angel of the Lord went up and spoke to the people and says, Look, I brought you out of Egypt. I won't break my covenant with you, and you should not be making covenants with the people of this land. And so he spoke these words to the people, and he said uh, in verse 3, I'm not going to drive these people out before you, but they'll become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And so that is, I, I guess you could say that's God's judgment on them, but it's also the consequence of their lack of faithfulness, their mm -hmm. lack of obedience to God. And that just jumps out with modern day applications to me. The mm -hmm. same with us. A, a failure to obey God not only brings God's displeasure, but it also brings with it some natural consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is a part of the Bible, or, or at least a theme in the Bible, that uh, a lot of people, and I think rightfully, have trouble with. 
and we'll put it in the strongest possible form. We'll, we'll bring in uh, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. <laughs> he accuses the God of the Old Testament, particularly the God of passages like this, uh, of commanding genocide in the Old Testament and exterminating people in the, in the land of Canaan and all of that. And uh, th- th- like I said, this, this is maybe rightly hard to stomach in some sense. Why is it that God would command his people to kill and get rid of all of these innocent Canaanites, uh, you know, just because he wants his people to have this land. Right. <laughs> What's up with that? Well, yeah, that is probably the strongest statement of that case, and it has several presuppositions with which we do not agree. First of all, there are no innocent Canaanites any more than there are innocent people today. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Scripture teaches clearly, and obviously the history up to this point, as you start reading at Genesis 1, you realize There's a downward spiral for a reason. Fallen humanity is bent towards sin and embraces it with gusto. Mm -hmm. There are no innocent people. Yeah. If by the end of this book you think the Israelites are bad, you should see the Canaanites. That's exactly right. You know, one of the other things that I think is uh, kind of running underneath a statement like that Mm -hmm. is, uh, first of all, that there's no awareness of the spiritual deterioration that's going on in a book like this. I think, you know, I don't I don't expect someone like Richard Dawkins to pay close attention to what's going on in the spiritual lives of anyone, really, but especially people in the Bible. And God gives you his own justification in this book for why this happens. So his people are supposed to be the lights of the world. They're supposed to take the, the blessing of God through the children of Abraham to the world. Right. And this land has been promised to them. This this is their, you know, rightful inheritance from the Lord. And from this place, they're supposed to spread the news of, of God's favor and his blessing and the covenant relationship with him to all the Gentiles. Well, they don't do this. And one of the reasons they don't is because they are corrupted, and it's their fault too, but they are corrupted by the pagan people that they fail to drive out. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to get around the fact that this is, that this is brutal. Mm-hmm. But, there, but it needs to be said that it's not without purpose. So one of the reasons that God commands them to do this is because it sets them up to do his will in the land. I think that's a fair reading of this text. I do. I, I also think, uh, and I'll just throw this in without getting into it too much, but the idea of, I like what you said about there's no doubt that it's brutal. But I think before we get on our 21st century moral high horse, we need to be a little bit careful. I don't know about you, but I've sure seen a lot of brutality on my television set recently in the United States, in the most civilized country in the world. And so I think before we start making moral judgments about what God is doing in this time period in these people and decrying brutality. Um, I mean, the clothes we wear are built on the backs of third world laborers and the brutality that we see in our society. I just, my point there is not so much to uh, uh, what about-ism. My point is simply to say everything we talk about comes from the viewpoint of fallen humanity. So God should be judged on God's terms, not on 21st century Western terms. Right. And, and I think it's naive to think that the history of humanity isn't littered with violence and war and conquest. Right. The, this, this is not a question of whether or not the very nice Canaanites would have uh, gladly accepted the Israelites into their land. It was 
it, it was definitely a case of the Israelites conquering them or them conquering the Israelites. Absolutely. And uh, that's just a reality we have to hold in tension with, you know, some of the things we see in the New Testament mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> when it comes to these Old Testament stories. And so we understand in the scope of Scripture that the point of the Israelites entering the land is to fulfill the promises of God. When we zoom in on a story like this, we it, it is difficult to wonder, uh, you know, why couldn't this have been done peacefully? And those are good questions to ask while you read the text. But I think as you get into it a little bit, you're going to see that uh, that's not the situation that they walked into. Yeah, I don't think then or now. I mean, if you look at uh, the situation in the Middle East with Iran, Russia, China, you see imperialistic behavior today, and it is no different than then. I think it's a very naive and uh, point of view to say, gee, couldn't we accomplish all these good things peacefully? That's actually never been true any time in the history of humanity. I'm not sure why we hold on to that fairy tale right now. Right. Here's the question. Are you moving towards something that leads to human flourishing, or are you moving towards something that leads to oppression of humanity? Every empire that we've set up in history has oppressed people. This is moving toward the cross of Christ and the ultimate liberation of all humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get a big turning point in 2.11 where we get a preview of what's to come, and this will make sense of a little bit of the conversation we're having and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the Lord their God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. <laughs> Back to that trade-off here. Uh-huh. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, and the Lord, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So this is the first moment of the cycle. Right. They are in the land, but because of their disobedience, they are now oppressed by the people around them. And pretty soon we're going to see they cry out. God raises up Othniel. And he delivers them, and then there's peace in the land for 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, dies. And then, all of a sudden, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 312. And the Lord uh, strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And he conquers them. And they cry out again. And he raises up Ehud. And uh, we won't talk through every single one of these judges, but Ehud is always a story I've really liked. Uh, for for one reason being, he's the only notable left-handed character in the Bible. <laughs> uh, that doesn't surprise me that you, being a lefty, identify with him. It's 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 a crucial detail to the story, as you see when <laughs> you fact, read it. it is, it's yes. part of the it's part of the uh, plot that he hatches against Eglon. And th- this story is just really unique, really funny in some ways. Um, this is a favorite of middle school boys. There's poop involved <laughs> in this story. Um, but you move on and you get this cycle of judges. I, I, you know, the ones that people typically teach on, mm-hmm. you have Deborah and Barak. You sometimes get, uh, stories about that, especially about Deborah. Right. Stories about Gideon, Samson, uh, we'll cover a couple of the lesser taught stories, but these are, these are some of the heroes of the faith. Uh, but these are very human characters. I've always loved the way that you teach Gideon and Samson, 
What do we learn from these stories in the book of Judges? That's a great question. You, you see very flawed individuals who, with whom we can identify. Gideon is not a powerhouse. He wasn't top in his class. He was not the quarterback on the football team. He says, I'm the least of my clan, and my clan is the least, you know, the least mm-hmm. of my family, and my family's the least in my clan. In other words, I'm yeah. just not your guy. You know, I'm, I'm on the chess team. He's I'm, a nobody from nowhere. I'm a nobody from nowhere. Yeah. Exactly. And Samson grows up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. He's got this strength, but he has no, he has no sense of what to do with it mm-hmm. whatsoever. It, it, he skipped too many Sunday school classes. And so you get people that are very human, and yet God uses them. And I suppose if you want to look at it in a humanistic sense, you could say God sees things in them they don't see themselves. I would argue God places his spirit in them and they're able to do things that they could never have imagined. You know, mm-hmm. Ephesians 3.20, the God who's able to do more than we can even imagine. And I, I think that's important because I think if this were the story of 12 judges who were, you know, absolute saints, you know, absolutely, you know, top of their class when they got their MDiv and, you know, they're all just little Billy Grahams or Mother Teresa's running around. I'm mm-hmm. not sure, uh, first of all, if I would believe it. And secondly, I'm not sure I could identify with it. Right. And so I do think all these characters, even the better known ones, their power is in the fact that they're real human beings. Right. There's there's a lot here in terms of observing what people are like, as you're Mm -hmm. saying. This is the human condition. This is how people operate. God uses people from the most peculiar places and... You know, if you've if you've lived and been a Christian for more than you know a couple of days, you realize that God picks the people that you never would have picked to right. be uh, part of something amazing in His mm-hmm. plan, and all of these characters fall into that uh, category. So it, it, there's an interesting little textual arrangement here. Um, if you look at the way the book is structured. So Gideon and Samson have the longest sections, and I think they are foils of each other. And if you think about their characteristics, it's pretty easy to see they are photo negatives of each other. Gideon is a coward who is faithful in the little things, and God brings about a great victory. Uh, He starts out strong and faithful. He ends not so well. Right. Samson is... uh, prideful and overtly strong, inwardly weak, does, isn't faithful in any of the little things, screws right. up every little thing you Compromises possibly could. every commitment he made. He yeah. uh, starts out slow, gets slower, and ends with a bang, right. very faithful at the end. Finally, ends with a faith that's a, a really self-sacrificial faith. Right. Then you see these two middle characters, so Abimelech and uh, Jephthah are a little bit shorter, but they are both kind of paired together in these stories. They both have very strange stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you <laughs> when you read these stories, you, you'll you be scratching your head saying, what just happened in uh, both of these stories? But Abimelech is uh, fairly honorable, and uh, Jephthah is kind of a fool, as you see in the story about him. And so right. you get some really good contrast, and God uses all of them. In surprising ways and in uh, ways that you don't expect. And that's pretty true to human experience mm-hmm. when you think about it. But those four are kind of the main four characters, with, with others, obviously. But they almost, they're almost they almost a Mount Rushmore of unlikely heroes 
of the faith. And it's a you get a very real sense of who these people are and how God uses regular, everyday people to do extraordinary things. You know, that's an interesting phrase you just said. They're unlikely people. And as I fast forward, I think of the 12 disciples sure seemed like an unlikely group to do what they did. And then I fast forward to you and me and everyone we know. And I think, wow, we're, if someone looked at me today and said, you're a pastor in a church, they would say most unlikely guy to become a pastor in a church. You know, we are all to, in some sense, unlikely mm-hmm. characters in God's story. I love that, that phrase. In the middle of the book, you get a little bit of a glimpse of, of something good. Um, you have God angry at the people, the people cry out, and God reminds them of his faithfulness, and they confess their sins, but it doesn't last. And you get the story of Jephthah, and, and I want to stop here for a minute. I, the story of Jephthah is very strange, and I think a little bit problematic when when you read it. So Jephthah is a judge. He's a mighty warrior. He has a very interesting past. Uh, he is the son of a prostitute, and he is not the favorite of his brothers and sisters. And I always, uh, whenever I teach this story, I always start out by talking about, have you ever been in a situation where you really need something from someone, but you've been mean to them before? <laughs> That's the position that Jephthah is uh-huh. in. He, he vindicates himself, but he's a fool. And the part that's difficult about this story is he makes this rash vow. He says, the first thing that I see when I get back, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Well, wouldn't you know it? The first thing he sees is his daughter coming out of his house. And I think people are troubled sometimes reading this story by saying, would God really hold him to this rash vow? I mean, why not just call this off and you know, pretend like it never happened? And all of a sudden you have Jephthah saying he's got to uphold this vow, which you see in the end, he doesn't actually uphold the vow. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a little helpful background I want to offer here. In this story, Jephthah, this is a description of what Jephthah decides to do, not what God has called Jephthah to do. In fact, if you look back in the law, one of the things that God forbids is taking oaths in such a way that would lead you to sin. So if you take an oath that will lead to sin... It is an invalid oath. You cannot take that oath. Mm -hmm. So Jephthah should never have taken this oath in the first place. He should never have kept this oath. So we don't want to read the text in such a way that God has bound him to this oath because he hasn't. Jephthah bound himself to this. Leviticus and Deuteronomy both forbid human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So this oath is invalid, even Mm -hmm. though Jephthah takes it and and, uh, stresses over whether or not to keep it. Um, but it is an unfortunate set of circumstances. There's no getting around that. Uh, so, so we move into the story of Samson and this is one we could do, you know, its own episode on. There's so many great parts of the Samson story, so many interesting things. What, what are, what are the points that stick out to you in the, in the Samson story? Uh, one, uh, one point that I really emphasize is if you, the geography of this story mirrors the spiritual lesson of this story. And so let me plant this seed. Samson is of the tribe of Dan, and they are living, if you if you go to Israel and you see this, there's a beautiful valley where you can grow a lot of crops. Unfortunately, the Philistines are growing the crops there because Dan was not strong enough to kick them out. And they're living up on a hill in a couple little villages back on a hill where you couldn't grow 
rocks. I mean, you couldn't grow anything up there. And they are just scrabbling to stay, to stay alive. It's just what God had said. You didn't kick these people out, and now they're going to be a thorn in your side. And so Samson begins to, uh, as a young, strong man, he catches the attention of the Philistines, and he continually walks down this valley from Zorah, which is where he was born, down to Timnah. And you literally stand there and you see he just literally walked down this valley, and he crossed the border. He crossed the border between the Israelite land and the Philistine land. And every time he did, he violated some of his vows as a Nazarite. Uh, you know, he goes and he drinks wine at, uh, at a party there and comes back. He, that's a violation of his vow. He goes and he kills some animals, and that's a violation of his vow. In other words, every time he travels to the Philistines because he's so drawn to that culture and so wants to be somebody important, every time he physically walks over there, he also spiritually erodes his faith until finally he has nothing left. And one of the saddest verses in the Bible is finally after several times he lies to Delilah about what his strength is. Mm-hmm. And he finally says, okay, if you cut my hair, I'll be weak. And so she does, of course. I mean, he's, he's got to be really unlucky in choosing girlfriends. I'll say that yeah, for him does not have over and over. Not good taste in women. But basically, then uh, she says, oh no, they're here. And he jumps up and he said, I'll go out and I'll defeat them like I always have. And it says, but Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. Mm -hmm. And he, over time, had so eroded his spiritual commitments. And, of course, there's a powerful lesson there for us is losing our faith, losing our effectiveness, however you want to look at this, doesn't typically happen by waking up one morning and saying, I think I'll become an atheist today. Mm-hmm. It's a slow process of constantly going over the boundaries. So that's probably, there are a lot of lessons in the life of Samson, but that's one that's just so vividly visual when you're there. And even looking at a map, you can realize, yes, he's literally crossing a border and he spiritually keeps crossing the borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's there's so many great parts of that story, and it, and it is a tragic story that's you know, redeemed at the end. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the tying the fox's tails together is kind of a cool deal. And uh, all the different uh, uh, clothes that he gets from making that deal <laughs> that he has to supply for the when he gets tricked. Samson is a very sympathetic character yeah. in the sense that uh, we all know people and we all know in our own hearts the, the moments where we are weak-willed and right. we compromise. Right. And we keep doing the things that we know we shouldn't do. And... Uh, Obviously, it's a very graphic picture of what happens when that happens. But um, as you move through the rest of the book, there's another story that I want to highlight just because when you read this story, you are going to gasp probably. It is the most R-rated story, uh, one of the most R-rated stories in the Bible, the uh, Levite and his concubine. This is in chapter 19. And like we said, the whole trajectory of the book is an unraveling. This is this is an exploration in human wickedness. So what will people do without God? That's a good question to ask when you're reading the book of Judges. What what would people be like without God? And chapter 19 is gonna, and 20 are going to give you a perfect picture of what they're like. That's a good point because what's going to happen, what you're about to describe happening in chapter 19 and 20, so closer to the end of the period of the Judges, you cannot imagine this story happening at the beginning of the book of Judges. Right. Things have just gotten completely and totally out of control. 
So you have uh, a Levi, and he comes into town, and basically, long story short, um, the townspeople attack this house, and they attack the concubine, and she's raped, and then eventually cut up into little pieces and sent all over Israel. So <laughs> you, you start asking yourself, what is going on in this, in this story? Mm-hmm. And it is brutal. It is very brutal, and it's hard to read in places. But I want to make a connection here. If you read this story, you will begin to remember another story in the Bible that is a lot like this story. In fact, there is very similar to this story, and that's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Something very similar happens. Angels come into the town of Sodom. People bang at their door. The guy that lives there hands over his daughter instead of the what we know are angels. Right. And uh, things go terribly wrong. And what happens right after that? Well, the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Fire rains down from heaven. And uh, it, is, it is a smoldering crater. What's interesting is when that happens in Genesis, because we're seeing the contrast between Abraham, who's faithful to God... And these people in Sodom and Gomorrah who are evil, you think to yourself, well, I mean, I don't know if they deserved hellfire and sulfur, but they certainly deserve something. Now you get to this point and you realize that this is happening within Israel. So Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And they deserve the judgment of God. They deserve to be wiped off the planet like Sodom and Gomorrah were. You know, and Jesus even makes this connection in the New Testament. He says, you know, if the signs and wonders were done in Sodom and Gomorrah that have been done before you, it would have been spared because they would have repented. Right. And you haven't repented. Right. That's exactly right. So this story reminds us that God is patient with Israel. He is faithful to Israel. He redeems Israel. He preserves Israel as the line of the Messiah even when Israel becomes as bad as the surrounding people. If you pick an example in the Bible of how bad the Gentiles were, and we're not, we're not yet to the child sacrifice of uh, what we see later right. in uh, the people of Israel, which again, in the reign of uh, Manasseh, right. is the same lesson, that Israel has become exactly like the world. In this case, we see the worst moment pre-judges in the external world or at least one of them, is mm-hmm. that story about Sodom and Gomorrah. And here we have a story that is almost exactly the same as happening in the Promised Land, um, against a Levite, nonetheless. Right. So when this is over, he sends the pieces of the concubine out to the people to let them know they have become exactly like the world. Right. And this is the low point of the degeneration of Israel throughout the book of Judges. Yeah, Israel goes from being the savior, so to speak, of the world, the light to the world, to the oppressor. Two thoughts here. One is a tangent, but it's really important. When we talk about this story, how brutal it is, how just absolutely degenerate it is, I want to remind you that this isn't just long ago far away. I just finished rereading the Gulag Archipelago. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with that, it's uh, Solzhenitsyn who fought in... uh, Basically, well, basically, what happened is in Soviet Union, after the communists came to power, it's the story of him in concentration camps, basically. They called them gulags. In the 20s, 30s, 40s, he's released in the 50s. 
And so that's not that long ago. And the stories you read about what people did to each other there are worse than this. Mm -hmm. So point number one is I just want you to realize this is humanity. This isn't just a little snapshot of some bad people in Israel. Right. Second thing is, talk about coming full circle, is you see this being done, you know, here, this brutal type of thing. You remember we talked about Samson, and he was from the tribe of Dan, Mm -hmm. and they were eking out a living, and they decided, I want to finish that story for you, because it gets worse. So Samson gives them some relief from the Philistines for a little while, but then it just goes back to as bad as it was. Mm -hmm. And they decide, we can't stay here, our people are starving. And so they go from the middle of Israel, and they send some spies out, said, find us a place. They go way up north, farther than the Sea of Galilee, and they find this peaceful little town named Laish. Mm-hmm. And they come back and they say to their brothers in Zorah and Eshtaol, which is where Samson was from. This is later. This is generations later. And they said, hey, we have found a land full of peaceful people, and there's nobody around to help them. They're unsuspecting. Uh, we need to go kill these people and take their land. And that's exactly what they do. They kill those people. They take the land. They rename it Dan mm-hmm. after their ancestor Dan. And so you really see Israel. And this isn't doing what God told them to do. Mm-hmm. They've abandoned doing what God told them. Now they're going to go profit themselves from murder and oppression. And you're right when you say, and it's really astute of you to realize Israel, God's chosen people have come full circle. They followed the spiral all the way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to add two, two little details. And these are the kind of textual things you get from reading multiple times, mm-hmm. right? Nobody notices this on the first time or without a commentary or something. But uh, it's just like you said, the tribe is significant. So the tribe of Dan is the tribe that Samson is from. They go up, they move out of God's appointed territory for mm-hmm. them, and they disappear. From Israel, So you hear about them every now and then. But what's interesting is in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, when uh, you see the people who are called out of every tribe, there's we should do a little Q&A on this because this is kind of confusing. But essentially, you have a double portion given at the blessing uh, of uh, Jacob to Joseph. Right. So you'll notice in the lists, you never see Joseph. You see the tribe of Ephraim. And you see the tribe of Manasseh, and right. then it ends up being His the half-tribe mm-hmm. of Manasseh. So they mm-hmm. get a double blessing. Well, that means that one of the others gets the boot, and so right. it's different people at different times. Mm-hmm. But in the end, when you have the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, there's one tribe who is missing, and it is the tribe of Dan. From this point on, the tribe of Dan recedes completely. Um, they do what Samson does without the righteous ending, right? Uh, because they stray out of what God promised and out of God's protection, and ultimately they go missing <laughs> in right. the end. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, it, it, to bring it back full circle, uh, we've highlighted this in a couple of our overviews, but if you look at chapter 19, for example, the story of the Levite and the concubine is interesting because the Levites are the priestly people. You know, they, they are the people who are set aside. They were spread out throughout the whole land. Yeah, they've given special cities and mm-hmm. uh, set aside. And this Levite comes into a town which is in the hill country of Ephraim, which you might recognize <laughs> from the very beginning of the book. And uh, it is this man from the hill country of Ephraim. So he's part of the family of Caleb. 
and it is his house that these people attack. And so at the beginning of the book, you have Caleb and his family going out and conquering evil and slaying giants and uh, settling in this hill country. And at the end, you have the people of the hill country devouring their own uh, and attacking the priestly uh, Levite and uh, killing his concubine. So this is, these are all just little textual reminders of the flow of the story. We mm-hmm. started out hopeful. We started out in the promises of God. And we end with the judgment of God on the people of Israel. And so the book of Judges ends on kind of a bleak note. Right. So before we end here, what are some of the takeaways? Other than just a description of you know human nature... And uh, how how quickly things can spiral out of control without God. What other takeaways do you have here for reading the book of Judges? Well, one for me is that this is not, again, those people. Thank God I'm not like those people. This is the story of Terry and Cole and everybody who's listening. Without God, this is also our trajectory. Now, you may say, I I don't know that I would end up chopping someone to pieces. I'll give you that. But the point is... Our lives on their own have an entropy that goes downward. Mm-hmm. And but for the grace of God, there go I. Right. And so that's a powerful idea to me. The second one, and I'll kick it over to you and you can take off on this a little if you want, but it always made me wonder through this 300-year period, why do they, after generation after generation, again, it's not the same person always making this decision. It's generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Is What is the appeal of the Canaanite gods? That they keep turning yeah. back to them. I think that is also important. Yeah. I, you know, we talked about in the in the beginning, God tells them to expel these people so that they mm-hmm. won't run after foreign gods. They mm-hmm. don't expel the people, they run after foreign gods. And you might be sitting there wondering, well, couldn't they just not expel the people and not run after foreign gods? <laughs> and uh, these foreign gods are very enticing to the Israelites. You see that all through the Old Testament. And it's mm-hmm. easy for us to sit here and say, well, I wouldn't worship Baal, you know, the god of crops and thunder and things like that. You know, that's so right. it's so primeval to worship gods of wood and stone and all of that. Uh, I wouldn't worship Ashtaroth, you know. Uh, we typically pass judgment on these people for being primitive. Right. But it tells us something really powerful about how subversive and how attractive and how uh, disorienting the gods of every culture can be for people who are trying to follow God. See, because now our gods are not made of wood or uh, ivory or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now they are things like power or they are made of plastics and uh, synthetics and, uh, (laughs) you know, printed on paper. And, Uh you know, we we also have material gods. We also have spiritual gods that uh, we are drawn to. So, and Jesus warns about this repeatedly in the New Testament. Things have not really changed. So, uh, what, what do you? Why do you think the Israelites continue to run back to these gods? Yeah, I think it's exactly what you said. I would characterize it. I want to take you all the way back to Judges chapter two, verse three. Remember, after chapter one, he said they failed to do this. They failed to do this. They failed to do this. So God says, uh, these people, because you failed to do it, will become a thorn in your side. And listen to this. And their gods will become a snare for you, Mm -hmm. a temptation for you, a trap waiting for you. And I do think that's true today as well. I think the two big things that I would summarize would be prosperity. I mean, they're slaves coming out of Egypt. They just came out of the 
desert and they come into this and they realize, oh my goodness, this is a land of milk and honey. I mean, these people are prosperous. So you see prosperity and they associate, the Canaanites associated their gods with prosperity. Baals were fertility gods. Mm -hmm. So one is they go, we want to be prosperous like you. We'll embrace your gods. We'll, We'll become like you. And the second is the Baals were highly sexualized. The worship of sex was symbolic of productivity and fertility. And so you really appeal to the two, two of the most powerful instincts of our human fleshly nature. One is I want comfort and prosperity. And number two, I want to fulfill my urges, my mm-hmm. lusts, my passions. And so I think that when you put it in those terms, you realize I may not serve the bales, but I'm still being ensnared by prosperity and sex. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for that because that theme runs through the entire Bible. Right. You're going you're gonna to get those exact same urges, temptations, uh, rival gods and goddesses mm-hmm. throughout the entire Bible. And uh, there's a permissiveness that's involved with the gods of the other culture that is appealing and uh, people run after. And it, and it hasn't really changed to today. I think my final takeaway is that in the midst of all of this, God continues to choose people to work through. He preserves his people, almost miraculously at many points, that there even is a group of people called the Israelites at the end of Judges, right. for David to and, and Samuel to unite together into the kingdoms of Israel. And we're going to see it degenerate afterwards, too. That's an important point you make, Cole, is if I were God, I mean, put the human person here, I would have cut my losses a long time ago. Yes. I would have said, I cannot work with this. Exactly. Uh, in fact, I would say, you people are making me look bad, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm cutting you loose. I'm going to cut you from the team. But it's really interesting, when you said that, it really hit me that God's, God's uh, purposes and God's default is not punitive, it's redemptive. Mm-hmm. And he sticks with the Israelites through all of the mess and crafts redemption out of that. And that's yeah. very encouraging to me because I think that happens in the course of our own lives as well. That's absolutely true. In our lives, in our families' lives, in generations of people, in cultures, you know, God preserves the Israelites. He continues to save them. He, the best days at this point are ahead for Israel. That's true. Um, and he's going to bring about uh, the promises that he had given them despite their best efforts to thwart his promises with their disobedience. And the last thing I'll mention is, you know, the line of Christ runs through this story. So we don't have a lot of information about who the the line of Christ is running through at this point or exactly what those people are doing. But uh, the line of Christ coming through the tribe of Judah in this land at this time is being preserved. And God is biding his time and he is bringing his promises to bear so that at the right time, David will be born in the line, and at the right time after that, you know, Jesus will be born in the line. And so even at a time like this, God continues to use imperfect people, uh, you know, like we mentioned, Gideon and Samson and Jephthah, and God continues to preserve his promises. And subtly and behind the scenes, he is tracing a path through the book of Judges onto the story of Christ. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. 
Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.